Hi everyone and welcome to another podcast episode from UH Studio Architecture and Design Academy. In this episode, I want to go in depth about how Zaha Hadid and her office changed the profession of architecture. So probably most of you are aware of Zaha Hadid. She passed away fairly recently in 2016 and her office is still going strong in many ways with the same vision that she had set up initially when the office first was realized in 1980. So a brief overview of Zaha's life and works for those of you that may not be familiar with it. She was born in Iraq to an upper class family and she was educated in boarding schools in Switzerland. She came to England to study at the AA and she got her diploma there. Then she worked in the office of Rem Koolhaas, OMA, for a few years, and then she established her own practice in 1980. At her own practice, she was sustaining herself at that point by teaching, and she taught at the AA, Harvard, University of Chicago, Columbia, University of Vienna. She taught at many places, and students from that period describe her as being a very energizing and energetic lecturer and she used a lot of her methodology that she was doing through her own research and drawings in her education classes. So from 1980 until 1990, Zaha really wasn't building much. So in those early years, Zaha produced a prolific amount of work of conceptual design projects. And she was using the medium of drawing, sketching and painting as a medium to explore her own design ideas. Those ideas then started to slowly materialize through a couple of key events. One of the stepping stones was the exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in New York on deconstructivism, which she was a part of. So after that, she became an established person of deconstructivism in the eyes of the academic world, of the theoretical world, and in the eyes of ambitious clients who wish to have designs that are built that are slightly different than maybe what's being built out there. After that exhibition in 1988, some people started taking notice of her body of work. One of these people was Rolf Feldbaum, who was the design director at Vitra, and he invited Zaha to build a fire station at the Vitra headquarters in Switzerland. Vitra is a furniture company for those of you that may not know and they have been working for a very long time with ambitious designers and architects from throughout the world. So that was one of the first built projects that Zaha did and from then on the office slowly started winning competitions and getting more commissions but it took perhaps another 10 to 15 years for the office to really gain momentum and start building magnificent projects to where it is now basically a household name along the same lines as Frank Lloyd Wright, Le Corbusier and so on. And I do believe that the office of Zaha is to that level revolutionary as the five point system that Le Corbusier developed. So why is that? There are a couple of reasons and I'll get through them throughout this episode. But one of the most important aspects is that the ambition through which the projects of Zaha Hadid were built required a specific client that wished to have those kinds of ambitions and the budget to realize those kinds of things. On top of that, the construction industry had to be ready to realize those kinds of projects and the office had to have specific kinds of technology to materialize these types of designs. So a lot of things had to work in parallel in order to allow the Zaha Hadid architects to realize their projects. And that slowly started to materialize. It wasn't ready in 1980, 
definitely, and he wasn't quite ready and established from all corners in 1990. But by the year 2000, maybe 2004, 2005, the office really started kicking into high gear and a lot of those elements became together. Maya is typically used for animation and VFX work, not so much for architectural design, but the freeform subdivision-based models gave the architects at Zaha's office a capability to be able to start to materialize some of those sketches and some of those designs that Zaha had in her drawings. So it was one of those excellent moments where there's an idea, a very strong idea, that perhaps may be hard to transfer from a conceptual idea to an architectural idea. And a technological evolution or perhaps experimentation from the office allowed that to start occurring. And beyond that, something else happened as well. In order to realize some of Zaha's projects, capable structural designers have to had to be on board. And many of Zaha's projects are have very complex facade panels. The technology to produce those kinds of panels also needed to become involved. That technology materialized with Grasshopper, the plugin in Rhino for parametric design. So it allowed many of the panelings and facades that the office of Zaka Hadid was creating to become rationalized in a way that allowed them to become buildable through various technologies. Some of them were produced in rather traditional ways, but they were all slightly different. To others who are very much on the edge of technology and pushing the facade technology further for the whole construction industry. And that's exactly why I believe Zaha Hadid architects are essential of changing the field of architecture and design. Because the designs, in order to realize them, they had to push specific technologies further to what they were beforehand, to be able to realize some of the massive cantilevers in regards to structure or some of the facade panelizations that were occurring in many of Zaka's projects. An example of a project which was using a very innovative and cutting edge technology for facade fabrication is the Grand Rabat Theater in Morocco. That theater was developed by a facade consultant called New Technic, who are based in the UK, and they developed a on-site technology to mass customize and produce facade panels. So there have been a lot of other experiments throughout the world to try this kind of technology, including at ETH and other universities. But this was maybe one of the first examples where the technology was used in mass to clad a whole fairly large building, the Grand Rabat Theater. So I did my postgraduate degree over 10 years ago at the AA, the Architecture Association at the Design Research Laboratory, DRL. And that program was co-founded by Patrick Schumacher, who is the sole partner of Zachary Hadid Architects after she passed away in 2016, and of Brett Steele, who used to be the director of the AA for a long time. DRL is closely associated with Zaha Hadid Architects because many people go to DRL and teach at Zaha, or many people from Zaha teach at the AA. So there's this kind of cross culmination between the academic institution and specifically the DRL program and Zaha Hadid Architects. However, at that point, after graduating, even though a lot of my colleagues went on to work at Zaha, I was maybe a bit immature and didn't quite understand the significance and importance of Zaha's work. At that point, I was very much focused on the aesthetics of the projects which have a very strong and unique style, which perhaps is not for everybody. I mean, let's face it, most of Zaha's projects 
even though they're evolving now, but initially from that earlier period, many of Zaka's projects were these, let's say, artistic sculptures that people can occupy and live in. They were meant in no way to fit in with the context, right? They're meant to be the stars of whatever context they're living in. And that's okay. But that, for some reason, irked me back then. Little did I understand how important it is in other ways in regards to design and construction. So that's why I think it's important to talk about this. And it only hit me when she died. And I don't know why I had a huge epiphany and I was super sad about the fact that she died fairly young when you think about architects' ages. At 65, this is prime time for architects. Some of them get a little bit luckier now, and I think with social media, it's also easier to break through a little bit earlier. But many of those people also owe it to Zachas because many of these people that are breaking through now also have quite unique design styles. So when she passed away, it really hit me like a hammer on the head. I understood exactly the significance of Zaha's work. Before that, I really was too focused maybe on the aesthetic aspect. And after that, I realized all these things that I'm talking about now, which is facades, which is how the office designs and the software that it uses to design. And it also has to do with structure. So a lot of these things are not exactly what people think of when they think of Zaha's projects. Many people do associate it first with aesthetics especially younger architects or non-architects, they see buildings and they say, oh, wow, a beautiful, curvy, organic-shaped, shiny, white object. Yes, there's definitely that part, but to get to that part, there's a lot, a lot of work that has to go on that is in a workflow that's quite unique and doesn't exist in many other offices beforehand. Now, some other offices have adopted that kind of workflow as well, in particular, mad architects who are perhaps the strongest affiliate of Zaha Hadid, not official of any sorts whatsoever, but they follow a very similar workflow. And of course, there is a lot of other people that used to work at Zaha's office. They have set up their own offices or do other kinds of work that picks up on the kinds of methodologies, research, workflows, and rigorous conceptual frameworks which they picked up while they were still at Zaka's office. So now that type of workflow and ideas are a little bit more common in the world than before at Zaha. If somebody did a subdivision-based architecture concept in a program like Maya or Blender in 1995, nobody would take him for real that this could actually be realized because the technology wasn't there, there wasn't experience on site to understand how those kinds of projects could actually be realized. Whereas now when we see all the numerous, maybe also too many concepts that are existing out there, especially on Instagram, we actually are aware that any one of those conceptual design projects could actually be realized because we know that the technology has been worked. We know that double curvature panels exist. We know that there are ways to rationalize elements that look like double curvature to single curvature. And there are also companies that specialize in producing those kinds of panelizations for facade systems. So that's my little story with Zaha Hadid. So I have a lot of colleagues from the AA who are still working at Zaha's office. And 
it's been quite influential in understanding how they work and how the work that's being produced there impacts the whole industry in one way or another. And that's typically what happens in any industry, right? We have somebody who's quite innovative and tries to create something that's a bit different. Then the clients get accustomed to that. They start to request the aesthetic language, perhaps, that Zaha has been producing to other companies. And then all of a sudden you see a trickle flow of projects that start to be a bit more evolutionary, a bit more twisting, and involve a lot of the conceptual framework that was initially set up in the office of Zaha Hadid Architects. There are numerous examples, you know, some towers by SOM, for example. The more traditional players like IDAS or HOK produce some work that probably they would not have produced if Zaha's office wasn't around because it gave the legitimacy as the first person to dip into generating those kinds of structures, those, that kind of aesthetic language for others to pick up on and to utilize and for the clients to realize that, hey, maybe this is something quite interesting and we should be paying attention to it because it evolves with maybe the client's framework or it's something to be considered. Yeah, so it's quite wonderful in some ways that buildings these days do not have to have 90 degree walls. In fact, maybe it's almost taken to the extreme now that rarely do you see buildings, especially if it's something a bit more innovative or larger scale that does have 90 degree walls. It's hard to judge that because it's very subjective depending on a lot of elements. One is how well does the architecture composition work in the context that it's situated. Another is, is there even a context or is this a new building or a new complex that is meant to be the sole context that maybe allows for other buildings to prop up and generate that kind of language and composition in the urban design of the work. To summarize, Zaha's work and how Zaha changed the architecture industry. She was being very true to her methodology. From early on, she was quite explorative and she stuck to her principles. In fact, not only did she stick to her principles, she started developing them further and used those early 10 years when she was sustaining herself from teaching throughout the world of developing her concepts further and further through her drawings and through her paintings. And so she was experimental and capable of self-sustenance until the architecture and technology caught up to her ideas and allowed her ideas to actually be realized. Another quite important thing to look at is the fact that Patrick Schumacher is now the partner of Zaha Hadid Architects. So Patrick joined Zaha very early on. In fact, he was one of my teachers at the DRL. And he still continues to teach, which is fantastic. He teaches there at the University of Vienna and lectures throughout the world. So she understood quite early on that it's important to have people that believe in her ideas and are there to support her in any way that's possible. We can say that Patrick is the ultimate believer because he continues her vision. Maybe by this point it is also his vision, but he's staying in many ways. He has changed the practice a bit. Maybe he's a bit more open to getting competitions and clients from different corners of the world or different industries. Whereas Zaha, I know, is quite selective in the kinds of projects that she was getting or wanted to work on. So Patrick has kind of opened up the office to even more potential clients. So he was one of the earliest employees at Zaha's office. He was a director from very early on. So it's fantastic to think about having a person like that in any office who's willing to continue your legacy, your conceptual framework, your ideas, 
and continue to realize them in many ways that's actually possible. So she clearly had understood that very early on when she was starting to get built work. We also talked about the fact that she was teaching for an extensive period of her career. And that's quite important because she was both energizing young and ambitious architects, but she was also energized by them. Universities are fantastic places because you have a lot of enthusiastic students that are willing to learn and experiment and explore different conceptual ideas. So by the time that the office was ready to build, both clients and the construction industry started adopting Tuzaha's output. Let's take a step back from this and think about it for a second because it's actually quite fantastic. So instead of the designs of Zaha adopting to whatever technologies were capable of the time, those designs pushed the whole construction and engineering team to think beyond what may have been capable of the moment to start thinking about how those structures, how those facades, how those architecture spaces can start to get realized. Now, you definitely need to have the right client on the team that's also willing to risk because there is definitely a, a good amount of risk involved in trying out new ideas that haven't been tried before. That kind of team between a good client that's willing to risk, that's willing to invest, and a designer that's very innovative and trying new ideas, massive cantilevers, different ways to think about wrapping up a building. So those ideas really start to create an idea that's probably richer than it would have been without that. So I, I can imagine in a typical Zaha earlier building, the engineer comes in the office to meet, they discuss the design, the engineer says, I don't think that can be built. We have to think of this in this way. And then perhaps Zaha or somebody else on the team says, no, we have to stay true to the vision. Let's experiment in trying different ways to rationalize the facade or different ways to realize a part of it. So there's a lot of that kind of strong, ambitious push from the office that doesn't succumb to external forces initially. Also, the office works regularly with very specific and very niche facade engineers that are capable of high-level rationalization to keep the vision of the projects true, but make it a little bit more buildable. And that's a very essential part of the workflow. So companies that Zaha has worked with are Front Inc and New Technic and probably a myriad of other similar facade engineers. And those companies are both engineer practices, so they have a lot of experience in either structural engineering or facade engineering, uh, but they're also quite tech savvy. So they're capable of writing their own software or plugins for Rhino to be able to rationalize the structures a little bit easier. And they're keenly aware of the construction processes and how to panelize in a way that makes the construction elements easier. So that experience doesn't come from the office itself, although over the years, there's definitely been a buildup of experience working with those kinds of companies in such a way that the designers there are capable of understanding what kind of design could be rationalized easier later down the line than having something that's completely out there and completely unbuildable. And those kinds of facade consultants have popped up as a wider collective of consultants that 
have evolved over the years with both technology and experience to allow structures like Zaha's to get built. To an architecture audience, it's also hard to talk about Zaha without talking about Autodesk Maya. Now, Autodesk Maya, as mentioned earlier, is a very specific software for 3D modeling, but the office adopted it fairly early on, I believe in the late 90s, and understood that some of Zaha's ideas could really be realized with this kind of software. And why is that? Because Autodesk Maya has subdivision modeling. The algorithm is called Catmull Clark, and without getting too technical about it, it comes from the Pixar guys, and they figured out an ingenious way of keeping a low poly mesh and having very nice organic subdivisions that are smooth with the cage. So it's in a way, it's halfway step between nerves modeling, which is all about control points, and polygonal modeling, which is all about vertices and edges. With subdivision modeling, you have a base mesh, which is polygonal model, but that base mesh you can topologically control based on the way that you subdivide it and create loop cuts to create refined geometry. So many, not all, but many of Zaha's projects explicitly rely on Autodesk Maya as a conceptual architecture software. So a lot of those buildings, they first start with competition stages or early feasibility studies have been explicitly done with Autodesk Maya. And at the same time, many of those designs are live linked into Grasshopper. So the areas, the surface areas, the floor areas are understood. So if there is any change of the massing, the area needs to be adjusted so they can meet their design briefs. And eventually the project lands in Grasshopper and in Rhino to become a bit more rationalized and cleaned up in a way that allows it to be more buildable. So technology is a very essential part of the evolution of why Zaha Hadid Architects has evolved. Now, it's also very important to talk about how Zaha Hadid's work is quite unique and quite perhaps different than somebody else like Santiago Calatrava, who's engineer and an architect and tries to combine both structural and architectural qualities within the same built space in those beautiful wing-like or seashell or sea animal structures that combine light and shadow and a multiplicity of structural explorations. Zaha's work for the most part is not that. It's very aesthetic. It's highly design-driven, but the structural aspects, perhaps in some projects, is taught a little bit more on the sculptural side of things, but for the most part, it's quite secondary. And it exists only to support the wider vision of the fluid and aesthetic expression of the architecture that it is trying to create. That's not to diminish it in any way whatsoever. In fact, it's the exact opposite, that it is true and capable of understanding where it comes from and how it's trying to evolve those conceptual ideas. For example, many of Zaha's projects, they unravel themselves and they grow from the context or from the earth, and then they shape themselves to become those kind of buildings. So that's why there's a strong element of linearity of, of the form of trying to grow from one area into something that's bigger and wider and maybe then shrink back down into a different area or those growth elements, they meet themselves at different angles or different conditions. So if you notice conceptually, those ideas exist in many of Zaha's projects.
And it's also interesting because the materiality is changing as well. The conceptual framework in many ways remains the same, although in many cases it gets adjusted to its own project. And recently we've also seen a shift in materiality. So there is a stadium proposal which is made completely out of timber. Yet it follows some of the line work of the way that different paths and different structural elements grow and merge with themselves in different ways. So that is also quite important for an architectural practice to stay relevant. You have to be able to evolve with different materiality, with evolving your conceptual framework, with evolving your digital design to build some of those structures. Beyond Maya, which is again the strongest and most important um, architectural concept software in Zaka Hadid Architects, they do also experiment with many other different kinds of software. For example, there's a design technology partner who left Gary and Gary Technologies and started working at Zaka Hadid Architects and along with him, he brought the capabilities of digital project, which is a software built on top of Katia and is capable of designing projects that are completely parametric. Now the CATIA software has adopted some of the elements that come from Digital Project. And Digital Project, by the way, now is owned by Trimbo, who also owns SketchUp and a series of other architecture and construction and engineering software packages. And CATIA has also hired an excellent in-house team of architects and design technology specialists that are driving the evolution of those tools to adapt to architectural designs. So there's a bridge in Taiwan that was explicitly built and realized with CATIA, which allows a level of parametric architectural design, which probably doesn't exist within architecture. We have Grasshopper. Yes, that has its own capabilities, but it's very hard to plug in multiple people to use a similar Grasshopper script because it is so free flowing. Whereas manufacturing CAD-based software like Katia and SolidWorks, they have a tree with information that's flowing from one to the other. So that kind of software is getting experimented with a lot in Zaha's office. Not that much, but in specific corners of the office it is. So there is that evolution and desire to try and experiment with different kinds of workflows and understand how those can work for architectural design. Unreal is another program that's getting a lot of experimental use from architecture companies. So what can we learn from Zaha Hadid Architects? If you have strong ideas or a strong conceptual framework, keep exploring it in whatever medium is most available to you. Some people are excellent at sketching, some are excellent at 3D modeling, some are excellent at parametric modeling, others prefer Maya or Blender-based modeling. Whatever medium you have, you have to keep experimenting with it and develop or research or study other people's conceptual frameworks and see how you can adapt their methodologies to whatever you're most interested with. You can bring that methodology along with you in your specific office because many designers have wonderful opportunities to work and explore their concepts, merge with the office's concepts. Or you can start your own office. Naturally, it's hard to start your own office without some experience prior to that. But having a strong idea of what you're most interested about is quite important. And keep digging at it, keep exploring it, keep learning about it, keep taking courses perhaps on it. If it's architectural technology and how to model, then 
try taking Maya classes or even Blender classes because I teach how to model in a similar manner like how architects model for Zaha's buildings or if it's about parametric modeling, there's a myriad of resources for Grasshopper of how to generate parametric design models. Or if it's about urban design, then there's various different ways to study how urban design can be explored and how we can take some of very useful old ideas from cities and mix them with new architectural structures to generate wonderful livable cities. Whatever it is, what I learned about Zaha and what I think is important for all architects to understand is that you have to keep digging at your own interests, keep exploring them and keep applying them in whatever way you possibly can to keep evolving your own ideas. And who knows, maybe someday we'll see your wonderful works all over the world. Let me know what you think of this podcast. If you're watching it on YouTube, please comment below and let me know if you would like to hear for other architects. If you're listening to the podcast on any of the podcasting services, you can go to uhstudio.com and there's a contact form and you can let me know there what you think about this podcast format and whether you'll be interested to hear more about different architects and the stories behind them really of how they get started and how they are evolving the profession of architecture. You can also follow me, Demeter SP, on Twitter or on Instagram or LinkedIn. So that's D-I-M-I-T-A-R-S-P. And I'll be happy to hear from you. I also have Patreon, so if you'd like to support me further, check out the Patreon, which is patreon.com slash uhstudio. Thank you and see you next time.